the Bible is a book full of unsolved mysteries. Are you looking to finally make sense of it all? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Andrea Goglin once said, The thing about perspective-changing events is that they usually don't announce themselves as such. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, we thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts uh, by way of email messaging, email messaging us at ChristianQuestions.com, Facebook, and our website chat board. So, Jonathan, what's our topic for today? Well, Rick, our question is, why did the tongues of fire touch the apostles? And our theme text is found in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. So it's about the tongues of fire on the day of Pentecost. And you know what? Sometimes the Bible is really dramatic. Take the day of Pentecost in Acts which was 50 days after Jesus had been crucified and raised. The apostles were told by the risen Jesus to hang around Jerusalem, and on the morning of this particular day, there were fireworks. Literally, there were fireworks which came down from heaven. Not only did fire come down upon them from above, but then they spoke in foreign languages about the gospel and converted thousands of Jews to Christianity. So, Why the big and spectacular dramatics with the fire from above? Was that really necessary? And what about the miraculous speaking of foreign languages business? What about all of that? Couldn't couldn't they have just used translators? You know, on rare occasions, God will do things so far out of the ordinary that we just have to stop and take notice. This particular day of Pentecost was just such an occasion. So let's see what the message was. So Jonathan, it's about the day of Pentecost, and we're really going to work on defining that. But, you know, when the Holy Spirit arrived on this particular day, the day of Pentecost, it was described in terms that sound kind of like a major windstorm, not to mention, like we said, fire from heaven. As sensational as all of that might have been, it was for a very specific purpose. And folks, in today's podcast, we're going to step-by-step uncover what that purpose was. God wasn't wasting his effort just being dramatic. He wasn't showing off. There was a reason for all of this. The whole idea of speaking in tongues began with this particular event. And the question we want to ask is, does modern day speaking in tongues match what happened back then? Actually, it doesn't. I'm going to tell you the answer now. No, it doesn't. Why do we say that? Because a lot of Christians believe it does. You've got to stay with us and listen through and see how we put it all together to come to that conclusion. Believe it or not, there's only two other instances where speaking in tongues actually happened in the Bible. We're going to take a look at both of those instances really carefully and compare them to today's practices, and you're going to see some astounding things. But first, Jonathan, let's figure out what this whole day of Pentecost thing was all about. So let's get started with that. Let's take a look at how the scriptures define the beginnings of the event. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and then we'll go to what the actual day of Pentecost from the Old Testament was. When the day of Pentecost had come, 
They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. You know, we want to set the stage for the drama of this event. So we've got a little soundbite from Shift Worship on Pentecost, and it just is a dramatization of sort of setting the stage, and it really helps to, to get the sense of, man, this was just as, as, as unusual as you can imagine. It happened that day when the Spirit arrived, when the Holy Spirit came. What happened then? It got loud, loud enough to be heard all over town. Fire appeared, divided and dispersed to each of them. The outsiders came running, and they heard the fire talkers tell of God's mighty works in their own language. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretans, and Arabians. The Spirit had come to describe the glory of God in their native tongues through those who followed Christ. So that gives you a sort of a feel for, man, this is pretty exciting stuff. This is very unusual, a big attention getter. And Rick, as I was listening to all the different languages that, that he brought out, you know, I was thinking, weren't the Israelites, we're talking just the Jews, able to hear these messages because the gospel wasn't opened up to the Gentiles yet, right? Right, right, right. There was no Gentile call at this point. That came three and a half years later. So you're right. This was exclusively a Jewish audience and they were from the Jews were from these other surrounding countries they were all in town for the day of Pentecost why would they all be in town for the day of Pentecost well let's figure out what that was going back to the old testament so we're going to go to Albert Barnes in his commentary and just sort of try to put that together a little bit from a historical perspective what the day of Pentecost was all about among the Jews it was applied to one of their three great feasts which began on the 50th day after the Passover. This feast was reckoned from the 16th day of the month, April, or the second day of Passover. The Paschal Lamb was slain on the 14th on that month at even. Okay, and so the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb was slain on the 14th of the month, and this is saying that the the feast this Pentecost feast, Penta means 50, this Pentecost feast was reckoned from the 16th day of the month, so the lamb was slain on the 14th, so Jesus died on the 14th, because he is our, our Passover, and so you go to the 16th, um, and, and that's where the reckoning of the 50 days begins. So let's just get a little bit more background here from uh, Albert Barnes. That was found in Leviticus 23, and on the 50th of the month was a holy convocation, the proper beginning of the feast. On the 16th was the offering of the first fruits of harvest. And from that day, they were to reckon seven weeks, that is 49 days to the feast called the Feast of Pentecost. So that occurred 50 days after the first day 
of the Feast of Passover. Okay, so that can be a little bit confusing. Why are we going through all this counting of days and multiplying and all of this? Because it was uh, set up by God in the Old Testament. All right, so on the 16th, was offered the first fruits of harvest. So this was the early harvest. This was the first fruits of harvest. Now, what happened on the 16th in Jesus' time? He was slain on the 14th. On the 16th, he was raised. So you have Jesus being raised from the dead, equivalent to the 16th of the month, and this is the feast, the offering of the first fruits of the harvest. So that's significant because Jesus was the first fruits of them that raised from the dead. And so, that is cool, Rick. Yeah, yeah. And so, you see, it really does fit very significantly. And so then, as you read, then they start counting these 50 days until the Feast of Passover. And now let's finish up the reading. The feast was also called the Feast of Weeks for the circumstance that it followed a succession of weeks. Exodus 34, Numbers 28, and Deuteronomy 16. It was also a harvest festival and was accordingly called the Feast of Harvest. And it was for this reason that two loaves made of new meal were offered on this occasion as first fruits, found in Leviticus 23 and Numbers 28. So this time of year was incredibly important, and God way back when Israel was first founded as a nation, set this all up. And now you see Jesus coming on the scene and being the fulfillment of these things. So he was the first fruits of the harvest. But then the 50 days later, it says that this was also part of the, the end of the harvest festival of the first fruits and two loaves made of new meal, made of meal that came from that particular harvest, were offered on this occasion and they were called first fruits as well. So, Jonathan, why this day of Pentecost chosen for the Spirit to come, uh, why was this day of Pentecost chosen uh, for the Spirit to come upon the apostles and the followers? Let's try to put together some of those details and, and paint the picture for the great dramatics that God put in place. Well, this was 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. 50 was a symbol for restoration. And Rick, you remember the Jubilee, the Jewish Jewish Jubilee. All right, so, so just quickly, what was the Jewish Jubilee about? Well, every 50 years, Rick, uh, debts were erased. Each family returned to his original land. And it was like a fresh start, an, a new beginning. So you had this, this Jewish Jubilee that, that takes away the, the difficulties of the past years because each family, each tribe was given certain land in the land of Israel. This all had to do with the land, and it was going back to where they started to give them the opportunity to, to develop again if they messed up previously. So it was a, a big restoration thing. And of course, Jesus is all about restoration. <laughs> he certainly is. Okay, what's the next point? This was a harvest time and celebration. The age of Jewish favor was ending. You know, we remember Jesus said to the, the Jews, you know, behold, your house is left to you desolate. And there was a harvest, a drawing out at the ending of one era and the beginning of another. And that's what in scriptures you call a time of harvest because you're drawing, you're gleaning out all of the good from that previous age as you get ready for the next age. Next point. Being harvested were those who would follow Jesus, those called out ones. And Rick, I think of the harvest of wheat, because yep. oftentimes in the Bible, wheat is described 
as the favored, the faithful. Right, right. You know, the parable of the wheat and the tares, for instance, is, is a great example of that. So being harvested out of the Jewish nation were those who were going to actually follow Jesus. Next point. Two loaves made of new meal. Perhaps the new message of the gospel for from the risen Lord. Okay, so you've got these two loaves. There's different ways of looking at those two loaves, but the fact that they're made of new meal from this harvest indicates that they are built upon what God is calling out for a spiritual purpose. And what's the last point? They were baked with leaven, uh, found in Leviticus twenty three seventeen. Perhaps showing the call goes to sinful men. Because leaven in Scripture... Represents sin, Rick. It always represents sin. And so it says specifically that they're baked with leaven. And so it's a great picture. When you put all the details of the Leviticus and the Numbers, the old, old, Old Testament story together, you see how it's setting up for Jesus. The Pentecost event, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, becomes really significant then because it's a harvest time and all of these things were going to come into play in symbol to show the actual work that Jesus did and what he was beginning with the age of Christianity. So baptism of the Spirit was first introduced not by Jesus. By John the Baptist. Yes, yes, by John the Baptist. John's audience was a wide cross-section of Jewish population. John back then prophesied the fact that all would not accept the coming Lord, some would need to be cut down, and some would be destroyed. Let's go back to some of John's words, Luke chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Well, there you have the wheat, like you mentioned. Yes. Okay. And you have a judgment. So there's a lot that John is saying. Now, this is before Jesus speaks a word to anybody in his ministry. This is setting things up ahead of time. And John the Baptist says, Jesus is going to come, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Nobody had any clue of what that would have meant. This clearly, Rick, is a prophecy of what is soon going to unfold. And it was a very mysterious prophecy because the idea of being baptized, they understood baptism with water. Baptism with the power of God? What? How? What are you talking about? Of course, John looked like a guy that might be a little bit off, you know, <laughs> to, to a lot of people. He was a wild man. <laughs> and, and he was a he was a powerful, powerful, powerful prophet of God, chosen to pave the way for Jesus. So, so Jonathan, as we wrap up this particular segment, where each segment we're going to be looking at different pieces of Pentecost. So, what are the first pieces that we need to put in place? Well, the law established a clear meaning. For this day as a feast celebrating a harvest. Jesus would spiritualize this meaning to have a broader worldwide significance. So the basis for Pentecost, for the dramatics, for the flames, the tongues of fire coming from heaven, for the sound like the tornado-like wind, for, for them to be able to miraculously speak other languages, was all built on this very particular day because it was a harvest feast. 
that God had set up thousands of years beforehand. So when Jesus told his followers he came to fulfill the law, this might have been part of that. We now know what the day of Pentecost meant to the ancient Jews. What would it come to mean for Christians? We're excited to be hearing from our growing listening audience at ChristianQuestions.com through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also chat with us now during the live broadcast. You know what would be really awesome? If you can leave us a review when you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and others. It helps us reach even more people. Thank you for subscribing and reviewing. Now, let's take the next steps in our comprehensive conversation. With sufficient background now in place, what was to happen next would be nothing short of astounding. The events that would take place on this first day of Pentecost after Jesus was crucified and raised would make that day one of the most pivotal days in all of history. And Jonathan, you know, when we, whenever we talk about pivotal days in history, we're always talking about Jesus. We're always talking about you know, his birth was a pivotal day. Uh, his his crucifixion was a more pivotal day. His resurrection was the most pivotal day in all of human history. This day of Pentecost is built directly upon that resurrection. It has everything to do with that. And it's I I would say it is one of the most greatest expressions of grace that we as humankind could ever receive. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad you said that because that's a, that's, a, that's a very profound way to look at it. It is in all of the dramatics, you have to see through the dramatics and like push them aside and say, what's really happening here? And folks, once we get to that answer, you're going to see how that grace comes bounding out of all of this. This is incredible. This is just, this is just exciting stuff. See, Jesus knew the importance of this day. His 11th and final appearance, just before his ascension, he spoke to his apostles about this. Acts chapter 4, after, Acts chapter 1, I'm sorry, verses 4 through 8. We'll take it in a couple of pieces. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of from me, for John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, so this is, he, he is going to be uh, ascending to heaven, just like momentarily. <laughs> so some of his final words to his followers are, you, th- there's something happening here. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what John said was going to happen. So the words before Jesus are echoed by Jesus with almost his final words to his apostles before he's raised raised up to heaven. This is the second time that Jesus, after his resurrection, instructed them to stay in Jerusalem. Okay, we won't, don't have time for the first event, but he had already told them that they to hang around Jerusalem, and now he's telling them again. Verses 6 through 8 of Acts chapter 1. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, Is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall 
be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So several things in, 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 this, in these couple of verses. The apostles, their reaction is, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel now? And the interesting thing is they knew there was a kingdom, an earthly kingdom coming to Israel. They did. Because they asked him, is it now? And he doesn't, he doesn't quite say no, but he does say no. He said, it's just not for you to know the times and the seasons. That's not your business. Your business is to stay where you are. And once you, you're going to receive the power that comes with the Holy Spirit, with God's power and influence. And because of that, you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria. And then he says, and throughout the rest of the world. So he says, don't worry about when the kingdom's going to be restored. There's something that's going to happen first. And like you said, a tremendous dose of the grace of God so you can accomplish my work. So there is a time element. There's a lot of work to do to spread the good news to the remotest parts of the earth. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's a ton of work to do. And they had no idea how, how long it would take. And here we are a couple of thousand years later saying, is it done yet? <laughs> <laughs> So, Jonathan, you know, as we go through the idea of speaking in tongues, there's lots of interpretations of it. We're going to sample a couple of different interpretations as we go through today's podcast. Uh, this is from Princess Child of the Most High God. And this is a woman who, the first thing that strikes me about her is her depth of sincerity. She just sounds like she really just wants to love and honor and praise God. I think that she's very misdirected in all of this, but you can't you can't look at it and say, um, "Well, there's no sincerity there." there there's something there, there's something very deep about this. So let's listen because she's talking about praying in tongues, and she's going to essentially demonstrate for her audience, for her her YouTube audience, this idea of praying in tongues. But she gives a first a little bit of um, background for that. It took me about seven years to receive the evidence of speaking in tongues, but I did it. Um, I was, I locked myself in the bathroom and I sat down on the floor to have complete privacy. It was like the middle of the night, it was about midnight, and my husband and my four kids were off sleeping. And I began reading about um, what scripture says about speaking in tongues. And when I got to the bottom of this website that I was reading, it said that you can't speak two languages at once. And so I bowed my head and I, instead of saying like, Abba, Father, or Daddy, or thank you, or something like that in English, I decided just to give utterance. And I spoke in a language <laughs> I never heard before. And I cried because it was beautiful. And the fact that I felt that connection with the Lord I wanted for such a long time. So she's describing her journey towards speaking in tongues. Now look, the kind of speaking in tongues she does, we just as disclosure right up front, don't believe that that's the kind of speaking in tongues that the scriptures advocate. But you can't talk about a subject like, subject like this without examining other perspectives. And while we think that her, 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 what, what she's going to do in the next soundbite is wrong, you got to look at it and say, boy, she, she really does have some sincerity there. And, you know, you can't doubt that. You, she just, she loves God. I, I have no question about that. 
But just because we love God doesn't mean we're not misguided. I guess that's what I'm trying to say here. So we'll get back to that next segment. We're going to listen to her actually do a little bit of speaking in tongues and see how she gets there. And we'll be discussing throughout the rest of the podcast, how does that fit or how does it not fit with scriptural reasoning? So Jonathan, let's go to the event. Let's go to Pentecost because that's really where this all started. The apostles, first of all, The important thing is they were where they were supposed to be, so they listened to Jesus. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Okay, they were in Jerusalem, and they were all together for the feast of the day of Pentecost. And so now God's spirit, God's power, God's influence is going to make its entrance. So they're all together in one place, exactly the way they were supposed to be. What happens in verse 2? And suddenly there came from heaven a noise, like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Okay, and remember that first soundbite? You know, the guy says, it got loud. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And he was right. He was right. And let's take this apart, because this is such a dramatic event. We want to try to understand the, the description that the scriptures give us of the pieces. And we don't want to add to the description. We just want to locate what the scriptures are telling us actually happened. So what does it all mean? It says there was a, a, you know, came from heaven a noise, like a violent rushing wind. Let's go through those words and just try to put them in perspective. What does it mean, the noise or sound, depending on your translation? What, what's the meaning of that word? Well, Rick, it means a loud or confused noise, a roar. Okay. And doesn't that remind you of a tornado sound? You know, you, you've heard, it's, it sounds like a freight train yep, yep. Uh, all around you, this magnificent sound. And, and I'm sure you're a little bit familiar with tornadoes yeah, yeah, as yeah. of recent. <laughs> yeah, we're, uh, it's quite a memory. It's very recent. Last May, a tornado came right through our neighborhood and ripped up trees all throughout our property and right how around many, our house. How many trees were down in your, on your property? Uh, Either either down or the tops were just chopped right off or were 20. Unbelievable. 20, and they fell, Jonathan, around the houses. It just was, it just, you know, this time God's grace protected us. Next time, maybe not, but this time he did. And you, you know, and I'll tell you, when, when, the, when the storm was coming, I love storms and I wanted to watch. But when I heard trees breaking, I said, I'm not watching this. And I went downstairs with my wife and the two dogs because that was too much for me. And I came up three minutes later, and it looked like a war zone. So wow. you've got this noise. And, you know, the interesting thing, the Greek word is echoes. Oh, neat. <laughs> a loud roar. A, so it's a very, very unusual, massive sound. So it's, it's a noise. Then it says like a violent rushing wind. The word for violent, that's an easy one. What does it mean? It means violent. But <laughs> the lexicon adds forcible. Okay, so very strong. So you've got this incredible sound, which is very strong. The next word is rushing, the sound or the noise of a violent rushing wind. This word is really, really kind of cool because, well, what does it mean? Well, it means to bear or carry which is odd. It certainly is. It's, it's odd. What do you mean? Rushing means to, to carry. But when you think about it, if you've ever seen rushing water, for instance, it carries anything that, that's loose. 
that's in its path. Yeah. Right, right, right. So the idea of carrying, bearing. So this rushing means that something is being being born or being carried. This word is used, and this is really cool. In John chapter 15, verse 2, this word is used actually three different times. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So where was this rushing word? I didn't hear any rushing. The word beareth. Okay. Beareth and may bring forth. So, Three times in this one verse, Rick. So any branch that, that does not bear fruit, that does not rush, that does not carry fruit, he takes away. And actually the, the translation really should be he, um, he lifts up. That's a different story. Every branch that brings forth fruit, that carries fruit, he prunes that it might carry more fruit. So the idea of the word, rather than just being this rushing that, that goes with the noises, it's, it's, it, it's carrying something. It's like, a, it's like a strong, strong current. Something very, very, very significant is happening. And so you've got the, the sound, the, the echoes, the roar of a violent carrying wind. And what does that word for wind mean? It means respiration. Okay. And let's just take another look at where that word is also used in the scriptures. Acts 17, 24 to 25. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And the word for breath is the word for wind. Yes. So you've got these words. Why are we taking all this time on these words? Because this is a dramatic event. This is something that changed everything. This is where Christianity actually begins. So you've got this roar of a forcible, carrying respiration or breath. And it's literally... It's the same word used for breath of life. So it's just like it's very, very, very deeply profound and significant. So let's take the next piece of Pentecost and put it in place here. The noise, like a violent rushing wind, was the audible and forceful announcement that carried to those present the mighty life-giving breath of God through his power and his influence. So it's the breath of God's power and influence. So in other words, in other words, now folks, to me, this is where we begin to get to the core of why for Pentecost. Just as God in Genesis had breathed into Adam the breath of life, remember a man becomes a living soul. Mm -hmm. He gives him breath and he becomes a living soul. God would now impart the mighty breath of this new creature. Remember in 1 Corinthians it says, if you are in Christ, you are a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What does yes. that mean? That new creature that's talked about, in, I think it's 1 Corinthians 5.17. I don't remember specifically. But what that means is that you are, that has to be alive somehow. It's not like, you know, it's not like alien growing inside you, but it's God's power and influence energizing your being to have spiritual life within it. 
And it's all because of God's power and influence. It's not because you're so smart, okay? It's God's power and influence. So this, the day of Pentecost, is where that process actually begins to happen. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 finishes with what? And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So, and that's another interesting thing. You have this roar, and, and you know, now people around are coming because it's so loud. They oh, hear it. They oh, hear yes. it. And, you know, you're going to have the tongues of fire, and you're going to have the speaking in tongues and all of that. But it just the, the fact that it says it filled the whole house where they were sitting. What, what, is, what, 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 what does that add to the story here? Well, Rick, I love this picture. This indicates their immersion, their baptism by the Spirit, just like John the Baptist said it would. Right. He was baptizing with water. And when you baptize, another subject, but when you baptize, you immerse somebody in the water. In other words, they, go, they are completely submerged under the water. That's what true baptism really, really is. And so when, he, when John the Baptist said, just like I baptize, just like I completely cover you with water, Jesus is going to completely cover you with the Holy Spirit, it says it filled the whole house, which means they were completely covered. Absolutely. So you have the picture of the baptism. So John was so... Now, John obviously was, was, was speaking through the power of God. He didn't understand all of this. Jesus right. knew. Jesus brought the disciples to this point. And from this point, the Christian world was going to actually be able to begin. The immersion... Uh, their baptism by the Spirit. This is where it all started. That's why the day of Pentecost was so, so important. So as we wrap up this particular segment, uh, these dramatic events undoubtedly show us that life-changing, world-changing things were happening. So God's Spirit arrives with a loud and almost tornado-like announcement. Why did God do that? Do you feel disconnected at your local church? Are you struggling to find a good church or a pastor you like in your local area? We hope you're finding our podcast helpful as you take the next steps in your Christian walk. We're not here to replace the brick-and-mortar ministry, but Christian questions can be considered as the new way to think about church because we're cutting through all the online commentary noise with a deep dive into traditional scriptures and how they apply in today's seemingly untraditional world. Thanks for listening at ChristianQuestions.com, through our app, and your favorite podcast channels. Keep your great comments coming. We always welcome your feedback. Now, back to Rick and Jonathan as we go deeper in our discussion. The significance of this event cannot be overstated. First of all, it is the first major event of the gospel in which Jesus was not there. Secondly, it was the fulfillment of what Jesus and John the Baptist had promised, as we talked about, would happen... For without God's Spirit, there could be no gospel preaching. Why? Why could there be no preaching of the gospel without God's Spirit? Because remember, Jonathan, the first thing that Jesus did when he was baptized, and what happened when he was baptized? Oh, it, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That this uh, dove floated down. Uh, I mean, there was evidence that the Spirit came upon him. So... If Jesus had to have the Spirit upon him to do the work, then it only makes sense that his followers would have to have the Spirit upon them to do the work. So the whole thing was about giving his followers the same 
opportunity, the same strength and power that he had, the power and influence of the Almighty God to work in their lives. Jonathan, this is as dramatic as you get, and and going back to your original comment, this is one of the greatest examples of God's grace you can ever imagine. Amen. Because why would he give this powerful influence of his to imperfect, puny little people? Uh, there's no good reason. <laughs> Except to show that his power can overcome sinfulness, that his grace is greater than anything that Satan can ever think of and imagine, and that his plan will work through those of us who are imperfect because of what Jesus did and because of the grace of God. That's why the day of Pentecost is so important. So this day, the day of Pentecost, was the birth of the true church, the bride of Christ. This baptism of the Spirit was the proclamation and proof of the separation of this little flock from the rest of the world. 1 Peter 2.9, we quote the scripture a lot because it's got a lot to tell us about the difference between Christians and everybody else. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, to be called out of darkness and to be called into light, that light we are graced with if God calls us and we accept that call. We are graced with God's spirit and become that chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And that means, Jonathan, that your job is to do the will of God only for the rest of your days here on earth and all of eternity. And our goal, we often say it, we want to bring praise, honor, and glory to God every day of our lives. That's right. And so Pentecost was the beginning of how to do that. That's why it's such an important, important time. Birth is a dramatic event. Everybody knows that. Filled with awe toward the miracle of life. So it was at the birth of this, the true church, the consecrated, the set-apart, the sanctified Bride of Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 3, back to the, the day of Pentecost event. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And Rick, it, it, it's interesting that fire represents two things. First, it represents purification. And second, it represents destruction. So you think, okay, tongues of fire. Why use a symbol with of purification? Well, because this was the pure power of God. This was the pure power of God that was coming down upon them. Destruction. Destruction of what? Destruction of their own will. Destruction of the will of the world and of Satan because God's spirit will ultimately prevail. And I'm going to jump ahead in this a little bit because in, in the prophecy that Peter quotes later on, he's, he's quoting from Joel and he's talking about God's spirit being poured out upon the world. That's not completely fulfilled yet, but it destroys the will of sin because the power of God is, is bigger. So the tongues of fire are tongues of purification and destruction at the same time. Fitting symbols for the power Christianity was to wield. So we, you realize that the, the gift of God's Spirit is, and, and, I, and I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it's, it's, it's pure grace because there's nothing any one of us can ever do 
to warrant that gift coming to us. We can't earn it, but we can be blessed by it. Big difference. I like that. I like that, Rick. So now let's get back to the event. There's definitely a sequence that happens here. The Spirit came upon them, and then they spoke in tongues. Acts chapter 2, again, back to the event, verse 4. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So this is interesting. They began to speak with other tongues. Now, first of all, the word for tongue is the word that you literally used for your tongue, but it's also used uh, the word for language. Okay, so that that is when it says they began to speak with other tongues, you say you realize it's they speak with other languages. And then the next phrase, reread the, the last phrase of that verse. As the Spirit was giving them utterance. See, that clearly is showing the miraculousness of this event. The Spirit, God's power and influence from those, 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 those tongues of fire that came down was giving them the ability to do something they could not naturally do. The, it was guiding them to speak in another language. And, you know, Jonathan, it's really hard to say exactly how the event unfolded, but it really appears that, that, that the apostles uh, began to speak in, in these foreign languages before or as the crowd was gathering. Okay, so the crowd is gathering, and they ended up with a crowd of, of several thousand. Okay, so this, this was a big, this ended up being a huge, huge, huge event. And remember, it was that big rumbling roar of a noise that got it all started. And, but, and, and you, you wonder exactly how long did it take? Was the noise going on for 20 minutes? I, you know, I wonder about that stuff. I would love to have just been a fly on the wall to say, whoa, did you see that? <laughs> <laughs> did you hear that? What is happening? So we're, we're trying to put it together as best as we can from what we know from the scriptures. Acts chapter 2, back to the event, verses 5 through 8. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So I'm assuming it says when this sound occurred, it's talking about the roar. Okay, that's what I think. It's hard to say. Okay, uh, the crowd came together. So that's what drew them. And then once they were drawn, they were bewildered because what they were hearing was something they didn't expect because they're in Jerusalem, they're amongst, they're all Jews. And so in that environment, they would be hearing the Jewish language, but they weren't. They were hearing something different. Why the power to speak of the gospel in different languages? Why did God choose to do that at this particular time. Again, this is why the day of Pentecost is so important. We're getting down now to the to the core of its its absolute importance. What what is it? Um they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Okay, why is it that they were hearing things in their own language? Because they needed to hear a message. One word. Communication, Rick. <laughs> That's right. So you got to say, okay, they were there to communicate. What were they there to communicate? This is really, folks, look, if you believe in speaking in tongues, and you do it in your church now, 
and you do it in languages that are foreign to everyone, I implore you to really listen carefully at this point. Acts chapter 2, the latter part of verse 11, describes what happens here. What is it? We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So remember that very first soundbite? The the guy lays out all the, the places where people came from to be in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost feast. Oh, yes. All the different surrounding towns. And I got to say, aren't you glad I didn't have you read all those names? Oh, I am. (laughs) (laughs) You know, these these guys, these these apostles were able to speak in foreign languages. We have a hard enough time just speaking English sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) You got it. (laughs) But here's the thing. It says we hear them in our own, own languages. And what did they hear? What was the specific thing that they got from what was being said? Well, Rick, this would be unmistakable proof of something supernatural happening. Because they heard them speak the mighty deeds of God. So there was no question about what was being said. There was no scratching your head saying, do you get what he's saying? There was a clarity of the message. And the message was the mighty deeds of God. And folks, again, if you believe in speaking in tongues... I want you to truly, truly hold on to this thought because this is the introduction to speaking in tongues in the Bible. And this is telling you why speaking in tongues happened. So they could hear in their own language the mighty deeds of God. And you're right. Something unmistakable, unmistakably supernatural was happening because these men who were speaking these languages had no education in those languages whatsoever. Having said all that, let's go back to Princess Child of the Most High God, and she is expressing her thoughts about speaking in tongues, and now that she has gotten, quote, good at it, she's, she's showing the world, because she's doing this on YouTube, she's showing the world how to do it. And so she begins to pray, and she's praying an earnest, earnest prayer. And, and folks, not for a second do we doubt the sincerity of the heart of this woman. Uh, just We just think that she's misguided, and we're going to get into very specific reasons as to why. So here she starts out with a prayer, speaking in words that we all can understand, and ends up speaking in, quote, tongues, as her church has taught her to do. It's not what we've done that gets us to you, Lord God. We come to you in absolute mess, a sinful wreck. And you, Father God, accept us. You've already paid the price. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that we don't have to know the right way. We just have to give our heart to you. So again, Jonathan, a very, very sincere woman who is is finding in in her mind she's finding this way to be close to God, and 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 this is and look, she'd have never done that if she wasn't taught that that was what she should be doing. Many, You're right, absolutely. Many churches teach that. The question is why. What we're going to do is, for the rest of the podcast now, we're going to be looking at the evidences of speaking in tongues in the Bible 
and we're going to establish the parameters that the scriptures show us to use for that particular gift. And once we do, it's going to help us understand this whole thing in a much, much, much bigger way. So back to the the event. One other very significant change occurred at the baptism, this baptism uh, of Pentecost, the baptism of the Spirit. Remember Peter, the Apostle Peter? Oh, yes. Less than two months before this, he was weeping bitterly because he betrayed Jesus. Because remember, this is 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection was the third day after his crucifixion. So less than two months ago, he had, he had, he had betrayed his Lord. Now look at him on this day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. This is powerful stuff. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. So Peter, the Apostle Peter, who had not so long ago betrayed Jesus and had to work his way back, Peter was transformed from follower to leader. He was transformed from questioner to teacher. He was transformed from human-mindedness to spirit-mindedness. Now, does that mean that, that he was perfect? No. Does that mean he wouldn't make any mistakes? No. What that meant is the grace of God's Spirit was upon him. And God's Spirit, power and influence, helped him to recall that prophecy in Joel. And that's found in Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. And Rick, uh, that's going to be in the bonus material. And it's talking about an event of the Spirit being poured out. And so, right. And, and you know, now, now Peter was not a learned man in terms of, you know, scripture study. So That's right. not only did the power and grace of God's Spirit give him the ability to speak in tongues, to speak in other languages, but it also gave him the ability to see into scriptures beyond that anything he could have ever seen before. And now he's doing what Jesus would have done, saying, here's why this is happening. Why? Because that's the gift of God's grace. His power and his influence working in the life of the Apostle Peter. He stands up, and now he's obviously speaking Hebrew, because he says, all of you who live in Jerusalem, I know you speak Hebrew, and I'm talking to you, okay? You think all of this is weird? This is not weird. This is a fulfillment of prophecy on a very specific day, where very specific things happened in the Old Testament, and are now being fulfilled in a whole brand new way, right here, right now. Again, very dramatic stuff here. What, no, wonder, no wonder so many were converted at that moment. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It, it was such a powerful experience with these tongues of fire and the languages and the roar and the, and the gathering of the people and the, and the intelligence with which the Apostle Peter pulled it all together. They said, we have to follow because this is too important to ignore. So this wasn't chaotic. It may have started out in a chaotic way, but the Apostle Peter, by God's grace and spirit, 
pulled it together, and gave them an intelligent sermon on the call to Jesus Christ. What are some of the pieces of Pentecost for this segment? The baptism of the Spirit was a miraculous event, signifying the birth of the body of Christ and giving those present the ability to preach. Now remember that. It gave them the ability to preach. That's what it says. Go ahead. It would never again be repeated, for the Spirit would now abide with, comfort, and teach Jesus' followers through the entire gospel age. Okay, so this was a miraculous one-time event. It was an important event. It changed the world based on the death and resurrection of Jesus. See, the death and resurrection of Jesus, I should rephrase that, those things changed the world. These were the first big tangible results of the change that Jesus put in place. Amen. And, and that's when, when it says to be a Christian, this is what we're called into. Now, does that mean we're called to speak in tongues? Hold that thought. We're going to get to that in a lot more detail as we go through uh, the rest of this, uh, this podcast. But what this does is all of this uh, shows us just how important true Christianity was and is. God made its introduction clear. So this baptism of the Spirit would never happen again. But what about the power and miracles? Sometimes our questions and commentary can get complicated. That's part of having a thorough discussion. We'd love to hear your opinion. Contact us now at ChristianQuestions.com. Comment through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or our app. Just when you thought we may be figuring this out, let's get more complicated. Here is where we need to be careful and specific because human nature takes astounding one-time events such as these and tries to mainstream them. The miraculous gift of speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost would become transferable, but only in a very specific way and only for a very specific time. And Jonathan, these are things we have to be really, really careful of because it's human nature to take the big big, astounding thing, and to try to replicate it. Well, it's in the Bible. It must mean we can do it. No. No. And just so you understand, no. <laughs> Sometimes, yes. But things like this, no. And, and there are very specific reasons why we say that. Um, let's go to another example, Jonathan. This is a little bit different. Another example of speaking in tongues. And this is from Luther Lutheran Re Renewal. Uh, and this is Eden, a six-year-old girl who uh, is given the quote-unquote gift of interpreting a word uh, of tongues. And, you know, there were gifts of the Spirit in, in, the, in the New Testament. One was to be able to speak in languages, another was to be able to interpret. Well, let's listen to this modern-day interpretation of how those things work. And he starts out by saying this is a testimony from Eden, who's only six years old. We have a testimony from Eden this morning, um, really special, and she told me last night, and I was just blown away. I heard Liz speak in tongues, and she was saying, yes, God, yes. Yes, God, yes. <laughs> so I, I give you a bit of context. Um, last Sunday at uh, Livingstone's Kids Ministry, they apparently had uh, scrolls where they wrote all the different spiritual gifts that you know, according to the Bible, are available for us to ask for. And I put them in a bowl, 
And then all the kids were able just to pick one. And Eden picked one as well. And her spiritual gift that she picked was the interpretation of tongues. So what they're saying is a six-year-old has this gift uh, of interpreting tongues. Okay, And the tongues that she's interpreting are the essentially the babble of another individual. And, you know, he said something interesting, Jonathan. He said, let me give you a little bit of context. Well, let's take and give a little bit of scriptural context. He was putting those events, the present-day events, in context. Let us here and now put the scriptural events in context, and then we're going to come go through this segment and see if those things actually make sense with the context of the scriptures. There are only two other New Testament accounts in which speaking in tongues actually happens. Just two. You had the day of Pentecost, and then it only actually happens twice. As we look at them, Jonathan, there's one thing we need to keep in mind. What is it? That's the Pentecost precedent for speaking in tongues. Okay. And the Pentecost precedent for speaking in tongues was witnessing the good news, because that's what they were doing. That's what people heard. Okay? So the first of the two events is the conversion of the Gentile Cornelius to Christianity. And we're going to drop in on that event. That is a huge story. It's a dramatic event as well. Um, and, and Cornelius, Peter is now at his house, and he had just recounted the visit that he had, Cornelius had recounted the visit he had from the angel. And here's what he's telling uh, the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10. We're going to read just little pieces of verses 33 to 47. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. So now Peter says that. He is proclaiming to these Gentiles that God accepts men from every nation. Now, what was behind Peter having the, the strength to say something that never would have happened before? Well, didn't he have a vision oh, he that did. God was trying to teach him uh, maybe three times? Yes. <laughs> and it was to eat the unclean meat. And in, in this vision, he goes, no, Lord, I, I can't do that. Right. And but what did God say? God said, what I have made clean is clean. That's right. And so, that's a paraphrase, but the idea is Peter went to the home of Cornelius with that vision fresh in his mind, and he saw Cornelius being called of God, and he said, I know that God is willing now to call men. It doesn't matter what their background is. This is the first time in history that this would have happened. So you have the day of Pentecost, which was a historical event for Christianity, as Christianity was given God's Spirit. And now you have almost like a mini Pentecost about to happen here, where now that spirit is going to be able to be given to people who are outside of Jewish heritage. Here's what happens next, verses 44 to 47 of Acts chapter 10. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they had heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Okay, now the thing to remember here 
is that the only time we have evidence of speaking in tongues was at Pentecost, before this. Okay? And that Pentecost event, that's the only time we're shown, was to witness the gospel. So there's four really, really, really important points here about what happens, because these Gentiles now begin to speak in languages. What's the first point? These Gentiles were most likely speaking Hebrew, a language they would have had no use for. You think about it. They are from Rome. They are Roman citizens. They have no use for the Hebrew language. So when it says they speak in another language, you, we, and this is an inference, we are expecting they would have been speaking Hebrew, which would not have been native nor necessary for them. And, 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 so, and why do we say that? What's the next point? Peter and the Jewish Christians immediately understood them. They were equipped to witness. See, we know that they understood them because it says that, you know, they were speaking in tongues and praising God. There was no evidence in Scripture. First of all, there is no evidence in Scripture ever of anybody speaking some language that is not discernible to any human being. There isn't. And we're going to get to some of those scriptures in, 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 the next, in the next few minutes, okay? So hang on with us. If you're saying, well, wait, you're missing, you're missing you know, praying in tongues. You're missing praying in tongues. No, we've, we're just not there yet, okay? So, so stay with us, okay? So it says that they understood them. This is really, really important. They heard them speaking in tongues, and the third point is? Their communication was just like Pentecost, praising from the same root word as Mighty deeds. So at the day of Pentecost, it said these people heard in their own language the proclamation of the mighty deeds of God. That's what they heard. That's what it said in Acts chapter 2, I think it was verse 11. Here it says they heard them in verse 46, speaking in tongues and praising God. The word for praising and mighty deeds is the same root word. So they're doing exactly the same thing that was happening at Pentecost. It wasn't babble. It was communication, Rick. Exactly. It was communication. The communication was just like Pentecost. And then the last point is what? This would have been proof positive for Peter that the Gentiles and Jewish Christians were equal. You couldn't have gotten it any more dramatic because Peter was the one who took a seemingly chaotic situation at Pentecost and made it logical. And now here Peter shows up again when you have Gentiles doing something that, that was unheard of, and he again makes it logical. He takes the event that seems different and says, this is God's will. They too are now equipped to be able to preach the gospel wherever they go. And it would have been a compliment to hear the Gentiles speaking Hebrew. You know, you know you're, yeah, you're right. They're, they're here and say, wow, they're praising God in my language the same way I would. Right. And that means when they're witnessing, guess what? They're going to witness to my fellow Jewish heritage along with the Gentiles that they try to convert. Right. And so no matter where they go, you're getting – and look – do we know that they were speaking in the Hebrew tongue? No, we don't. That's, that's our inference. Okay. It doesn't exactly say it, but it makes sense to us to see it that way because it's being, it's a simple story of a dramatic event. And we don't want to add to the event. We don't want to subtract from it. We want to report it as it is spoken of. They were understandably praising God. That's the key.
So that's the first time speaking in tongues ever happened. The next time we see speaking in tongues actually happen in scriptures is Paul is arriving in Ephesus, finding disciples who were not fully informed. And, and some of the background, Jonathan, is we were talking about this before. Who, who had been through the area? Well, it was Apollos. And Rick, he was a wonderful orator. People love to listen to him because his words really touched the heart. And, but he wasn't fully informed. No, no, he wasn't. Uh, in fact, um, he was focusing on uh, the baptism of John the Baptist, but he had some help later on right. in his Christian walk from Priscilla and Aquila, I think. Yeah, and so, but the point is that these followers of Jesus were not fully informed of things. So now they're going to be speaking in tongues in a minute here, okay? But before we go into the scripture, what's the thing that we have to keep in mind? The Pentecost precedent for speaking in tongues, Rick. Which was witnessing good news. That's what it was. It's all about witnessing. Okay, let's go to Acts chapter 19, verses 2 through 7. They answered, No, we have not ever heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. Okay, so Paul is has found these individuals, and he's talking to them, and he sees there's something missing. So he's asking them questions to figure out where they are, and saying, no, what, what Holy Spirit? What are you talking about? Because Apollos didn't know yet. He, he would know, and he would become a very, 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 very strong leader amongst the Christian early Christian church. So then the apostle says, okay, John's baptism was all about repentance. But there's, it was to prepare people for Jesus. You have been told about Jesus, but you haven't been filled in with the rest of the story. So Paul fills them in. And then verses 5 through 7 give us the result of that. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. They were about 12 men in all. Okay, so now, you know, it says they spoke in tongues and prophesied. You know, and a prophesying, Jonathan, is not making something up. Prophesying is expounding on powerful biblical truths. That's, that's right. And that's what they were doing. Now, if they're speaking in tongues, okay, they're speaking in a language that's not their own, and they're in Ephesus, again, my educated guess on this is maybe, again, they were speaking Hebrew because it would have been easy for Paul to understand them. Now, Paul spoke other languages as well, but why wouldn't they have spoken in Hebrew? Because he knew they were prophesying. Good point. He, I, I like that point. That's that's dramatic. And, and it's important. It's interesting. It says there were about 12 men in all. Why does it say that? You know, it's just kind of an interesting thing. I don't know. You know, just you, you think about it. But again, what it's showing is they are being prepared. Let, let's look at um, McGee's uh, commentary on this, because he's got some very important points here. There were many languages spoken there, just as there had been in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. East and west met all along that coast. It was a great city of that day. And remember, the Temple of Diana was there in that city as well. These men were now able to give the good news of Christ to the entire city. See, that's why they were prepared. 
They were prepared to witness. They were equipped to witness with the gift of being able to speak miraculously languages they had not studied. And that was so the gospel could be spread. That's why they were given the gift. That's why it happened at Pentecost. That's why it happened at Cornelius' home. And that's why it happened here. All of that being said, let's pause for a moment. Let's go back to Eden, the six-year-old, interpreting the word of tongues. And just let's hear, because, you know, her interpretation was very, very, a very, very simple little phrase. And let's hear how the, the, the pastor in this, in this context sort of makes it, uh, gives it, gives it its meaning. So for those of you that are maybe here for the first time, there, there's a spiritual gift called uh, speaking in tongues. Where, and you may have heard it in worship just before. Some people, they just pray and say things that their mind actually don't understand. It's actually the Holy Spirit giving words and moving the tongue. And so, you know, I speak in tongues and Tanya, but I don't understand what I'm saying, but I, it's a prayer language by the Holy Spirit. And there is a gift where some people can interpret and actually understand what is actually being said. And so you pick that gift, was on the scroll, and then all week uh, the family prayed into it that she would actually get the gift and have the gift. And so, and you just overheard her praying tongues, and, and suddenly you knew what it meant. Uh, can you say it again? What, what did it mean? Yes, God, yes. Yes, God, yes. So it's simple, but it's actually quite meaningful. Now, and the interesting thing, Jonathan, is that every instance I've ever heard of speaking in tongues is not just a very short little phrase. It's something, you know, very long and elaborate. And so, you know, again, th- what they're trying to do is, is say, yes, this is a gift, and it's a prayer tongue. That's what, So let's talk about, well, where do they get that from, okay? Before we get there, we're going to get to that scripture next. But all these three previous events have in common some bas- basic things, Jonathan. What are they? Well— Apostolic preaching, right. spirit-begotten followers, and an audience anxious to learn, Rick. Okay, either about the gospel or how to witness the gospel, and we must apply these precedents to the next verses we're going to talk about, because these next verses are very typically rep- misrepresented, just like in this previous soundbite, because he was talking about a prayer, praying in tongues. Okay, this is the verse that many Christians get that from. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1-4. through 4. Pursue love yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Okay, pause right there. Does not speak to men, but to God. So a lot of Christians look at that and say, see, when you're speaking in tongues, you're praying to God. It's a prayer language. Let's hold that thought, and let's continue the verse. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. So you can look at this verse and say, well, you're edifying yourself. That's not so bad. You're speaking mysteries and no one understands but God. That's not so bad. But it's taking it out of context. If you look at the context of how speaking in tongues was used up to this point in every example that it would actually happen, when you, you, you look at this, you, what you're seeing is the apostle saying, this isn't a good thing to be doing because you're speaking in a foreign language that nobody but God understands. And so it's useless babbling. So really, Rick, you're not speaking to men at all. No, you're not. 
You're not. And, and, you know, and, and he's saying you, you edify yourself because you're able to, to, to expound this gift, but there is no good that comes from it. Okay, so you have the gift. Yay. But where is the good that comes from it? And I'm talking about speaking a foreign language. I'm not talking about speaking some, something that nobody gets. Okay. So we're going to get into this fully into the, in the next segment. So Jonathan, let, let's go there. The p- last piece of Pentecost from this segment is what? Tongues were meant to equip disciples to witness the gospel to others. That's what they were there for. So far, it's clear. Miraculously so, for speak, those of you whoops, that it may be- miraculously speak another person's language so you can tell them about God's plan. So, is speaking to God in tongues wrong? Didn't Paul refer to speaking the language of angels? If we asked Rick, Jonathan, and the CQ contribution team to answer our topical questions in five minutes or less, rather than in several chapters over 90 minutes, they'd probably get a little stressed out. Plus, they love painting that bigger picture by looking at several real-world media perspectives, historical facts, and scripture. That's why some answers may come quickly. But we love taking a look at the bigger questions that aren't so easy. Yeah, it, it is so easy to read a scripture like the one about Paul speaking the language of angels you just mentioned and assume that, well, if he could do it, then I can do it. Firmly understanding the context of Paul's experience coupled with the precedence of the day of Pentecost established easily answers this question. This question about, aren't we supposed to be able to speak these languages of angels and, and have this, this these prayer tongues? And folks, the answer is no. And why do we say the answer is no? Because the scriptures don't give us permission to do so. That one scripture you can look at and say, well, it does. I would challenge that interpretation because it does. it's not supported in other places. Let's look at the Apostle Paul on this idea of speaking the language of angels. And it's just an idea, Jonathan. The, the text in question is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Okay, you know, the, so if he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, you say, aha, you see, he's saying you can speak in the tongues of angels. That's not what he's saying. He's also saying, if I do that, what, what have you become? <laughs> Uh, a, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You, Annoying. You, you're, <laughs> yes. You're just making noise. You're just making noise. Okay. Now, let's take a moment. Take 30 seconds. Go to one, our last soundbite for today. This is speaking into, from, from uh, Truth in Genesis, speaking in tongues compilation. And there is a, a woman who does a little bit of speaking in tongues up front, says a little bit of English, a little bit of tongues. Then you go to this crowd. So let me set the context. These are a bunch of teenage girls at a church service, and they're all sitting on the floor, and they're swaying back and forth, and there's tears and crying everywhere, and they are speaking in tongues. I want you to listen to this. I want you to listen to what it sounds like. This is a church service. It starts out with this other woman, but it goes very quickly to that. In the name of Jesus, you be made whole by the power of God.
What was that? Is that the folks? Is that the gift of God? Let, let seriously. Let let's take a look at this. Let's ask the serious question: Is that what the gift of God is meant to look like and to sound like? Doesn't that equate to that sound that the Apostle Paul was just saying? There was no sense to that. There was no value in that. And that's the whole purpose of tongues. Every time tongues were spoken, languages, it was to communicate to somebody else, another human being. How about Paul with the with the language of angels, though? Let's get back to him. Long before writing of, of First and Second Corinthians, Paul had a really unique, very unique, and I want to add, Jonathan, it was a unique personal experience. Okay. <laughs> he he recounts it in Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verses two to four. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven, and I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Okay. So let's let's take this apart because Paul, the apostle Paul had this incredible visionary experience and it was so real he couldn't tell if he was really there or if it was just a vision. He kept saying that. I this was so amazing to me and it says he was caught up to the third heaven. Now, a while ago Jonathan, I don't know if you remember, we had Wes Kramer on the podcast with us. Yes, that's and, right. And we were talking about the thief and, and, and you, know, you know, today I will be with you in paradise scripture and how that gets so misrepresented. And Wes made reference to this particular text. And he talked about being caught up to the third heaven. And, you know, a lot of times we think of the third heaven as like you're going up an elevator. First floor, second floor, third floor. You know, that's the, wow, that must be a really high heaven. But Wes was saying, no, 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 it's the third heaven in, because heavenly, the, the heavens represent uh, periods of time. The world that was, was under the, the angelic influence. It ended with the flood. The world that now is, is the present evil world under the rule of Satan. That's the second heavens. The third heavens is the messianic reign. The world that will be under the reign of Jesus and then turned over to God himself. Thy kingdom come. Right. So what Paul was caught up to was seeing the future. And that's why it says, he was heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter, because it's not for us to know. Remember how Jesus told his followers, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons? That's right. Well, we're his followers, right? There's a lot of things we're still not supposed to know. You got it. He is brought to see incredible things about the future. He sees and he hears unspeakable glory in terms of God. That's what his example was. That's what he's, he's looking back upon when he says he was in a, in a place and in a position that he was just given this incredible revelation. So let's examine now the context of the Apostle Paul's reasoning before his one-time comment in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, which we already read, about speaking in a tongue other than an earthly language. Okay, because remember in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, he said, you know, if I speak in tongues of, of men or of angels and don't have love, I'm just making noise. Let's go back a few verses, 1 Corinthians 12, 28 to 31. Again, folks, pay close attention 
here because things are put in order for us. And if we want to do what's scripturally right, we have to follow what the scriptures tell us we should be seeking after. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you still a more excellent way. So he's talking to the Corinthians about the spiritual gifts, and he lists some of them out. And he's talking about, and he puts them in an order. And, and he says that, you know, the bottom line is there's still a, a more excellent way. So, so let, let, let's, let's bullet point this scripture, Jonathan, because there's a lot we've got to talk about here. Sure. Several gifts of the Spirit are here listed, Rick. And he talks about apostles and prophets and teachers and miracles and healings and administrations. And then tongues is the last one on the list. Just saying, it's the last one. Second point. A divide between the greater and lesser gifts is established. 1 Corinthians 14.3 highlights the gift of prophecy. Right. We're not going to read 1 Corinthians 14.3 at this moment, but it tells us that the Apostle Paul basically says to the Corinthians, you know, I wish that you would you know, be focusing on the gift of prophecy, the gift of being able to expound on the depth of the scriptures rather than the idea of speaking in other languages. He's saying that's more important and he's telling him constantly, that's more important. So even in terms of gifts, the apostle is taking the gift of tongues and he's putting it on the kind of the bottom, which is interesting because that was the, the first gift given. So you say, well, why would he be taking it and putting it on the bottom? There's a really great answer to that, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. Go ahead, next point. The path of spiritual gifts is shown to be a lesser path as a more excellent way exists. Okay. So the apostle is saying, you've, you're given this, a t- you live at a time where these gifts are available, and they're wonderful. But as wonderful as they are, there's something bigger and better that you should be looking for. So he's saying, yeah, the gifts are pretty dramatic, but you know what? That's not where Christianity really lives. Christianity really lives someplace different. Next point. Paul is absolutely teaching by giving his personal experiences. I show you a still more excellent way. So he's saying, I have seen things that no other human being has seen on this earth. And I'm telling you, there's still a more excellent way. In spite of the things that I have seen, I'm showing you how to get there. So he is really laying out the most important things in our Christianity. And then the last point. The very next verse in 1 Corinthians 13, follow his personal experience. Okay, so we're going to go back to his personal experience, and and then once we go through that, um, we're going to jump down to 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. I told you to get that one ready after we read these, because this is, this is going to help us answer why the apostle keeps saying tongues are not that important, tongues are not that important. And it's, it's a really amazing answer, actually. First Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to reread verse 1, and then, re-read, and then read verses 2 and 3 as well. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not love, have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, 
And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. All right, so Jonathan, before we go any further, what translate, what's the Apostle Paul, what's his message here in, in, in the context of all these gifts and these incredible things? Well, Rick, it's the bottom line is the development of love. And if Jesus is our pattern, he taught us to love our enemies. We have to come to the degree of heart sincerity of love to prove our loyalty to God. I mean, that's what it comes down to for eternity, proving that we have that love that Jesus taught us to learn. So it's more about who you become and not the things that you can manipulate along the way. Exactly. And now the manipulation, the spiritual gifts, were God's gift to them. They were God's grace. But it was grace, Jonathan, that was given in a temporary in a temporary place. Read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So he's saying, he's saying, that these gifts are going to stop. So here's the thing, Jonathan. Think about this. Let's put the gift of tongues in order before we wrap this up. Tongues were put in place as a way to be able to witness to those that you could not communicate with otherwise. That's right. Paul is preaching now, or he's writing first and Second Corinthians in the A.D. 60s. This is 30-some-odd years after Pentecost. The gospel had been spread and there were churches in a lot of places, and they were already established in their own local languages. So the apostle is telling them the gift of tongues is not as important anymore because we are established, and they're going to cease entirely when that which is perfect has come. Now, what does that mean? I think that means once the New Testament is written— you have the complete knowledge of how to be faithful unto death written. You don't need to be able to do it miraculously anymore. So I think that once the letters were written and you put that all in place, those gifts would just go away because you didn't need them. God does something miraculous when he needs to and then he doesn't when he doesn't need to. So Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 14 goes on to explain the ungodly results of the misuse of the gift of tongues. Let's go to our final pieces of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was a one-time miraculous event designed to introduce Christianity and give the brotherhood the gift of tongues to better witness to the gospel. Okay, to better witness to the gospel. Tongues were never a prayer language. Four last bullet points before we close. Speaking in tongues was always the speaking of another human language. Don't ever forget that. That's the only examples that we have in Scripture of people actually doing it. Speaking in tongues was a gift and a lesser gift at that. 
And again, why do we pursue a lesser gift? Why do, if you're going to pursue gifts, which have all faded away, why wouldn't you pursue the greater one anyway? It's a lesser one at that. What's the next point? Speaking in tongues was always put in a place for the furtherance of the gospel. It started at Pentecost. It went through Cornelius and his family. It went to Ephesus. And you saw that it was used specifically to equip believers to be able to preach the word. And the last point? No one in Scripture is ever recorded speaking some heavenly language. That is critically important. And in that verse in 1 Corinthians 14 where it says, well, you know, when you speak in tongues, you don't speak, you speak to men, but you speak to God, that's not referring to prayer. That's referring to the fact that you sound like you're speaking another language. I'm speaking Spanish in an English-speaking environment. I sound like I am making noise to everyone around me, and it's useless it's useless babbling to them because there's no sense of the, of, of the interpretation. It's worthless, Rick. So there is no prayer language of tongues. That's not what that scripture meant. That's not what it was there for. So folks, we really have to understand what this was and how Pentecost was a world-changing event because it gave the gospel the ability to go to different nations and to different countries in the, Jew, in the Jewish realm. And then once Cornelius came in, the gospel was then able to go further into different realms. And that is what the gift of tongues was about. Nothing more, nothing less. Pentecost was a world-changing event because Jesus died and was raised. Let's take it for what it was. Let's honor God for the greatness of his plan and what he did there. And let's keep it in its context and perspective. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with, with us today and learning much more about Pentecost, an incredible day when incredible things happen and the gospel came to us. Till next week, in terms of speaking in tongues, don't do it, but thank God that it was done. Think about it. And folks, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback. Send us your questions on this episode or other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel. Review us as well. Coming up next week, how can we be truly thankful? We'll talk to you then. Have yourselves a great week. Mm-hmm.